Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. is 2014 and it seems as though on a weekly if not daily basis new technology happens right information communications technology which is leading some to question how these technologies will impact society Today, to discuss that with us, we have Hugh F. Klein, who is an adjunct professor of education and sociology at Teachers College, Columbia University. I am your host, Jasmine McNeely. Welcome to New Books and Technology. The book is Information, Communication, Technology, and Social Transformation, a Social and Historical Perspective. I want to get some background on you, though, because it's what we always do with our guests on the show. So perhaps you could just tell us about yourself. How did you get to this point where you are right now and, and up to writing the book? Okay. Uh, well, I'm a sociologist by training. Uh, I received my uh, Ph.D. in sociology in a department uh, which was uh, uh, a combination of various social science disciplines. So if you gave me the who am I test, I probably would answer social scientist uh, with a concentration in sociology. I got my degree back in the uh, mid-70s uh, from the Department of Social Relations at uh, Harvard University. Uh, my work in, at uh, Harvard was preceded by two years uh, of uh, where I began my graduate work at Stockholm University in Sweden. Um, and it was actually there that I began to develop my interest in technology. I had an opportunity to work with a uh, professor there who was a mathematical sociologist, and he was doing research on uh, uh, intergenerational social mobility. The Swedes have enormous uh, uh, records, which they keep in the Swedish National Church, the Lutheran Church, so that you can go back into uh, almost the Middle Ages and trace uh, uh, families uh, with their uh, uh, church records. And uh, so it became a matrix uh, manipulation project for this professor and I got a chance to work with him, uh, and we worked with uh, one of the very earliest forms of a digital computer in Sweden. Uh, it uh, had uh, 8K storage, and uh, I got my introduction there, and uh, uh, since then I've just continued my interest in technology and the ways in which it's being used and the ways in which it is uh, bringing about various kinds of changes in uh, in society. Uh, after I left uh, Harvard, I taught for two years at the University of California uh, uh, campus in Santa Barbara. It then was invited to become a visiting uh, scholar at Russell Sage Foundation in New York City. Russell Sage is a foundation that supports research uh, with the uh, uh, mandate to attempt to improve social living conditions in the United States. And I wound up spending uh, 10 years at Russell Sage Foundation and then 
um, uh, ultimately serving as president of the foundation. And when I left that, I, my children were in school in Princeton, New Jersey, where I was living and commuting to New York City. And so I decided to uh, stay in the area, and I went to work with Education Testing Service. And there again, I had an opportunity to pursue my interest in the ways in which technology was being used, and more focused there on, on educational institutions. Uh, when I reached age 62, I retired from ETS and became an adjunct professor of uh, sociology and education at Teachers College at Columbia. Uh, all during these years, I was involved in various kinds of projects looking at the ways in which technology was being used in a variety of different institutions. And I began accumulating a perspective and uh, notes, uh, knowing that someday I wanted to put all this down and uh, uh, author uh, a book on my own. I'll, I have several other books that I've done uh, with other colleagues, uh, mostly research project reports. This one I wanted to do on my own. And I've spent a lot of time working on it. Uh, so for 14 years, uh, I was using portions of my material uh, for teaching at the teacher's college. Uh, but I kept working on the idea that I wanted to uh, take a look at the ways in which information and communication technologies, computers and networks, uh, were uh, changing uh, many aspects of our society. Um, and uh, during that time, I became more appreciative of uh, uh, an historical perspective because as I thought more about ways in computers were being used, it seemed to me that uh, there were uh, there were lessons to be learned by looking historically at some of these social institutions. Uh, the book has uh, is a report, a summary of my observations, and uh, is uh, I would say the the main theme or the leitmotif of the book is that the many changes that we see and that are occurring with increasing frequency in our society that are attributable to the use of technologies, information and communication technologies, are really not new. Uh, in the sense that they are uh, innovations that have not occurred in history. Rather, most of the things that we see are uh, a continuation of changes that have, have their roots uh, back in our ancient past. And I'll give you a quick uh, example. Uh, we are all aware of the fact that, that we communicate differently uh, with one another. Uh, using uh, uh, computer networks and uh, mobile uh, technologies, uh, and that we are communicating in many new ways that we have not, uh, that were not available in the past. But if we go back to the history of human communication uh, and begin looking at uh, the, the uh, major innovations that have occurred over the past several thousand years, uh, we go back to ancient Greece, um, when people first started writing and reading, uh, there was a great deal of consternation, and it's apparently well documented that people uh, like Plato and Aristotle uh, voiced strong objections to uh, having uh, people learn to read and write. Uh, and their objections uh, uh, were in part based on the concern that if people wrote things down, that the human capacity for memory would diminish. 
um, that there wouldn't be anyone around who could recite the great epic poems uh, of Homer from memory because, well, you could write them down and people could read them. Uh, and there was a concern that this would uh, uh, result in uh, degradation of uh, human intellectual capacities. And indeed, it is true. There are very few people who can recite uh, the Iliad and the Odyssey <laughs> this day. However, um, what uh, reading and writing did do is it really gave us the basis for civilization because we could send information over distances. Previously, we were restricted to uh, people within the range of the human voice. Um, and more importantly, we could write things down and transmit them to future generations uh, so that we could begin to accumulate knowledge. Uh, and so, uh, if we look a little further uh, forward in history, there was uh, a great consternation and concern um, when the printing press started being used widely. Now we're jumping ahead to the to 14th, 15th century, and the people were concerned, uh, particularly the people who were involved in the production of religious manuscripts, were concerned that printing... Uh, if, if there were made uh, in the printing of, let's say, uh, uh, the New Testament, and you printed a thousand copies with an error, in it, that was a thousand. And um, uh, that was concern. Now, it, it is interesting that the people who uh, voiced those concerns, uh, many of them were the monks who were involved, been involved for many generations in. Um, uh, in copying the manuscripts, um, and uh, they also complain that the uh, the elaborate uh, uh, illustrations that frequently went with the copied manuscripts uh, would instill a certain amount of piety in the people who were reading it. And at least in the early days of printing, you couldn't reproduce those kinds of, of drawings, and all you got was the was the printed text. Well, that same theme of objections to innovations in, in patterns and, and modes of communication, uh, we can see in the uh, uh, the uh, people who were involved in telegraph were concerned that telephones would put them out of business. Well, indeed, uh, there are very few telegraph systems that operate these days. In fact, in India, it was announced just last year that the telegraph system there was operated by the Indian government, and they sent their last telegraph message you know, sometime last summer. Uh, and so, indeed, the telegraph industry. And the same thing happened when the television came along, people in the film industry were worried that television would, would ruin the film industry. In each of these instances where there's there's been a, a resistance and concerns, uh, each time we uh, innovated and expanded our modes of communicating with one another. Uh, and now there are people who are writing things saying that uh, the Internet is making us stupid uh, and that the children can't read and write any longer. Well, it's true. I, I, uh, I know teaching in, in a graduate school, uh, teaching younger people, they write differently than we do. <laughs> uh, and uh, uh, in my book, I tell a quick story of a couple of years ago, uh, a student who had taken my course 
Um, and, and I encourage the students to engage in the online discussions in between meetings of the course. Um, and as the semester wore on, more and more of the students were using the kind of grammar and style and punctuation or lack thereof that you find uh, in, in text messaging. And, um, and, you know, for those online discussions, uh, that didn't bother me. But one of the students then, at the end of the semester, asked me to serve on her doctoral dissertation committee. Um, and uh, as an adjunct, I can't do that. I can serve on a committee. So I agreed. And I said, but I want you to send me each chapter as you finish them. I don't want to wait until the end and read the whole thing. So she started sending me chapters. And they were, you know, the kinds of things with lack of punctuation and improper spelling and all uh, uh shorthand uses of, of things uh, and so I wrote back to her and said no the content is good but this is not this is not appropriate scholarly writing and you've got to put it in the format that's appropriate for uh, a, say, a scholarly journal so she uh, uh, took my advice but uh, she didn't really change very much and so when the final dissertation came in uh, I started reading it and I got very irritated because I'd spent a lot of time telling her where I think she was not communicating properly. And um, so I was prepared to go to the dissertation in a teacher's college. It's a public uh, event, but I was prepared to go and not vote in favor of approving the dissertation until it was put in the proper format. Uh, but the night before, I sat down and I said, well, I'm going to reread this whole thing so I'm prepared to point to places. Well, as I read along, I had to admit to myself that, you know, it, it's not the spelling is bad, uh, mix of things like there and there, weather and weather, um, and uh, the cases were wrong frequently in pronouns, punctuation was uh, non-existent, but I could understand what she was saying. And it made me stop and think, that, you know, the purpose of grammar and proper spelling is to communicate clearly. And she was communicating clearly. So I, uh, I gave a little speech at the dissertation uh, hearing the next day saying, you know, this is not scholarly writing, but it is clear. And I was prepared to vote no, but having reread it, I will now vote in favor of passing it. And... Um, and I made the comment to the other members of the, of the committee that, you know, 15 years from now, she may be the editor of one of our leading journals. And uh, the editors will be uh, uh, have a different style and way of communicating. So I tell that little story in the book because I think it, it emphasizes the point that communication uh, is not a static thing. And that when changes occur, there are many people who get upset and concerned. But one of the things I hope to do in this book is to convince readers to step back a moment uh, and not be concerned about such things uh, and look at this in a longer historical framework. Um, and I think it's easier to understand and appreciate. And then uh, when other innovations come along, and I think I see some evidence that there may be a resurgence of iconography, that is, the use of pictures to tell stories uh, that might supplement text. Um, and then, uh, some of the ways in which we interact with some of the computer systems now, uh, instead of, uh, as we did in the early days of computing, we'd type in an instruction 
uh, that would say print and then indicate the file that should be printed. Now when you reach over to the screen and touch a little icon of a print, uh, of a printer, and um, that's how we activate it. So uh, it's quite possible, I don't know for certain, but it's quite possible that we may uh, further extend our capacity for communication by combining uh, multimodal uh, communication, which would include text and uh, pictures and uh, perhaps increasing the audio and video. So that's sort of the light motif, and, and what I do is I, I look at across the major social institutions, uh, the chapters are organized that way so that we look at such things as socialization and education, economy, political processes, and uh, look at the innovations that are occurring there and relate them back to uh, trends of historical change that have occurred in each of those major, major innovations. What do you see as the importance of doing interdisciplinary study of things like technology and ICTs? I see that a lot more interdisciplinary, and I think it's a good thing, but just from your perspective. Yeah, uh, well, I... Uh, having been trained, uh, did my graduate work in a, in a at least interdisciplinary social science department. Uh, I think uh, I think the future of advances in science uh, and in applications uh, in fields like engineering will clearly come from uh, interdisciplinary work. I think it's a trend that has uh, been going on for some time and will uh, will continue. I'm, I'm quite certain. Um, if you look at what's happening on a number of uh, major university campuses, uh, you'll find that interdisciplinary programs are, are increasing, and in fact, buildings are being constructed uh, to allow this kind of interdisciplinary uh, here at uh, where I live in, in uh, beside Princeton University. Same thing is true at, at Columbia. Uh, there are facilities that are being constructed so that engineers and uh, neurologists uh, and computer scientists uh, and psychologists uh, can work together on projects. And, and so they occupy the same space. Uh, and uh, I think we'll see more and more of that. I take it as a sign of maturation in the sciences um, that uh, we are seeing more and more interdisciplinary work. Uh, the work that's going on in the area of um, brain scanning uh, is just fascinating and opens up all sorts of things. And yet, uh, people who are working that area, they need collaboration uh, among engineers uh, and psychologists and neurologists uh, in order to to make those advances. I think genetics is the same kind of thing, advances that we're seeing there. So all of those are examples of technology, and I think technology facilitating uh, that kind of interdisciplinary collaboration. Right. Right now, now one of the answers you gave just a, a few seconds ago dealt with um, history. The many changes that are attributed to technology now are really have really have roots in history. And I reminded when you said that, it reminded me of uh, Roz Williams' um, chapter from Manuel Castell's book. Yep. Um, and she says one of her refrains is "History matters." And I was just wondering, perhaps if you could discuss. Um, perhaps our societal 
either lack of understanding of history, lack of recognition of the historical foundations of a lot of our technologies? Yes. Uh, well, I think that's that's a fascinating question. Uh, I think all too often we deal with problems uh, in contemporary societies that they're new, uh, and we do not recognize that society evolves, sometimes quickly and sometimes slowly, but clearly in evolution. Uh, and uh, so I am one who believes that uh, historical perspectives would be well uh, introduced and, and used by people in uh, almost every discipline. I'm currently uh, working my way through um, a book uh, called Technology and World History uh, by someone by the name of Daniel Hedrick. And uh, he starts with um, uh, the Stone Age and works his way up to contemporary times. Uh, and there are a number of interesting themes that he pursues and, and continues working on. So uh, I think uh, uh, we, we don't we don't pay enough attention to the history of technology either, uh, and I think that uh, uh, I think that, that there's a growing appreciation of of that need and and the and the utility, fruitfulness and utility. Absolutely. Now, uh, you describe the book as discussing, examining, and analyzing the ways in which. ICTs are changing many things, many aspects of society. And one of the term, terms you use in the book is e-social change. I was wondering if perhaps you could discuss what you mean by that phrase, e-social change. When, uh, when I finished writing this book, I gave it the title, E-Social Change, uh, because I, what I wanted to do was stress that the, so much of the social change that we are experiencing today uh, uh, can be related to the fact that we're operating in an E or an I environment. And uh, I think I say that early on in, in, in the book. Uh, and uh, I, I don't think it's uh, awkward to uh, say that uh, when uh, Routledge invited me to uh, publish the book with them, uh, I uh, sent them the manuscript with that title, and they wrote back and said, no, uh, that's uh, not appropriate for the series that we do. Academic is a first-rate, uh, Routledge is a first-rate academic publisher, and I think it made them a little nervous to have that title. So they came up with the title of Information, Communication, Technology, and Social Transformation, a Social and Historical Perspective. And um, I was happy to have Routledge publish the book, so I was not going to turn down their offer. But I, I find that is an uh, awkward title, and I would suspect a lot of people would have difficulty in the uh, uh, if you walk by this in a bookstore, uh, how many people would stop and say, what's that about? And pick it up and look at it. Whereas e-social change might have had a different... I, I do... I'm, I'm using my book as a, as a textbook in my course, and I'm uh, hoping that people who are teaching courses in the social sciences, particularly introductory courses at the college or graduate level, would find uh, a book of this sort a uh, useful supplementary reading uh, that uh, it would uh, develop an awareness on the part of students of the utility of an historical perspective. Um, and I would hope that it would be adopted that way. 
I also uh, uh, hope that the book will get a general readership of people who, uh, uh, who get exposed to the articles about the you know, the Internet's making us stupid or uh, students don't know how to communicate and just put those observations in a broader context. So I was hoping that it would be, uh, uh, but I would have been very comfortable with the e-social change. (laughs) (laughs) Great. Now, in the book you say patterns and trends, or you examine patterns and trends in how the uses of ICT are affecting changes in our major, major societal institutions. This language reminds me a little bit of, uh, you know, medium is the message, kind of. And I, I'm going to ask you a question, and I hope it's not a loaded question, although I think it is, kind of. And <laughs> that is, uh, do you consider yourself a technological determinist? No, I do not consider myself a technological determinist. Uh, if I had to put a label on uh, my thinking, uh, I might put something like uh, an explorer of how technology is modifying patterns of social change. And I would say uh, and, and I think that's an ongoing activity. Uh, I might just mention that uh, in the course of writing this book, uh, every day I scan uh, some of the regular media, uh, New York Times, Wall Street Journal, uh, and uh, uh, I regularly read the major journals in sociology, uh, uh, social history. Uh, there's there's a, a special organization and journal. Uh, the Chronicle of Higher Education, and I made notes every time I've read about something, an innovation, an adaptation uh, that involved using technology uh, in uh, across the board, in education, in uh, uh, the economy, uh, in the political, uh, in the polity, in the political realm of our society. And I would make notes, and as I was writing the book, I kept scanning these things and saying, you know, uh, one of the reasons I, I took so long to write the book was I keep adding more and more things, and there's there's no way to write a book <coughs> that would be current. And so, <coughs> excuse me, uh, I uh, <coughs> I've opened the web page uh, on my own. I have not had one previously, and uh, once the book is out, a few more months, and hopefully more and more people will see it. I intend to do a monthly update to my webpage in which I will cite things that are happening happened recently that uh, that substantiate some of the general points that I make in the book. So uh, there are um, uh, new ways in which computers are being used in remedial uh, education at the elementary level, and I will want to put those all up on the website. So that if a professor is using my book as a supplementary text, he can tell his students, well, you go to tcline.com and you'll see the updates that are relevant for Chapter 4, Chapter 5, or Chapter 6 on the economy, mm-hmm. education, and the polity. So I hope to make it, uh, to keep it more current by uh, supplementing the printed book distribution 
with what, what would be uh, available as regular updates uh, on the Internet. So people can go and uh, see that, that these things uh, are current things are still still relevant for the general points in the book. Mm-hmm. So one of the points of um, analysis in your book deals with what you call the normative order. Um, yes. And about the value, shared values that we have societally. And I was wondering, um, taking into account recent events, and events that I guess have been continued for a long time, um, with respect to the internet and online communities and those different things, do you think that shared values or the normative order is, is fracturing a bit? Well, it's a very good question, uh, and it's one that we could have raised uh, in the 1920s uh, or in the 1880s, in uh, at least in North America. Uh, and uh, I, uh, and the, the extent to which uh, the patterns of communication that people involved are involved in using uh, online facilities, using the social networks, whether that is taking us forward and producing uh, more unity and more uniformity, uh, greater shared values, or whether it is taking us uh, in the opposite direction and fostering uh, disunity, uh, disagreement, um, and tensions, uh, I think is by no means clear. Uh, for example, uh, if we look at some recent events, that we know have been facilitated by the use of of the internet, <clears throat> things like the Arab Spring, uh, Occupy Wall Street, um, the, uh, the climate march, uh, climate change march. Uh, all of these things have been greatly facilitated by the fact that you can send an email out to literally millions of people. Uh, encouraging them to participate uh, in these kinds of activities. Uh, that's different. You weren't able to do rally that kind of people in the 1880s or in the 1920s, rally those numbers of people uh, for uh, participation in uh, what is, at large, the political processes of, of society. Whether that's going to splinter us or not, I don't know. Uh, and uh, in my teaching, I encourage students uh, to think in terms of, all right, let's break that down into some researchable questions and see what we can learn. Let's, let's, let's do some research and find out something about the patterns and content of uh, uh, ICT-facilitated uh, communications. Um, and I suspect that we'll find a mixed pattern, uh, but I think it could be informative to do that kind of, of research. Mm-hmm. Now, you're just talking about global issues, like the, the climate march and those things. And, um, related to ICT, though, I was wondering, particularly about the, the phrase information communication technology. It's used a lot, say, with Africa, Asia, Europe, but ICT is really not a, a phrase or word that's used a lot in the States. And I was wondering, why do you think that is? Uh, well, that's, that's an interesting question. I, I don't know. Let me make sure I understand. You're saying that the, 
the phrase information technology is not widely used in, say, North America? Well, information communication technology, that phrase, or that phrasing, ICT, there's, uh, there's very few usages. Uh, obviously, it means, it has meaning, but ICT as a name of a certain kind of discipline or integration of various disciplines, uh, integration of various technologies, mm-hmm. it's not, not really used a lot in the States, particularly. Not necessarily North America, but the States. Uh-huh. Yeah. Uh, well, that's uh, that's interesting. I uh, uh, My sense is that, uh, and maybe because I'm, uh, I use it, I'm more sensitive to it, that I see it used more frequently now than I did, uh, say, five years ago right. or, or ten years ago. Uh, that I think people are recognizing that uh, uh, that that I'll put it this way that social networking uh, is changing uh, the way people uh, the way our economy operates uh, and people are I see uh, people writing that the new forms of consumerism. Uh, of both uh, uh, both advertising and uh, and purchasing are facilitated by ICTs. I, I see that uh, that phrase being used uh, increase, increasingly. So, uh, or in the field of education, I see more and more people using this phrase, referring to uh, <coughs> modes of teaching and learning that are enabled with uh, with the use of computers and networks. Right. Yeah. ICT for D, ICT for E, <clears throat> development, education, and a lot of different uh, other aspects. I was wondering, um, in your book, you promise not to make any predictions about <laughs> the future, and you do that until the very end, right? But yeah. so I was wondering... Where do you think, if you can, you know, since this is not the book and you can speak freely, where do you think ICTs are going in the very near future? Well, that's also an interesting question. Uh, I think generally, uh, because we are able to reduce the size and expense of uh, connecting into networks down to the point where uh, we have handheld devices that uh, we're going to see these devices uh, distributed more frequently in developing nations than we've seen so far. Uh, there are reports that, uh, that the use of cell phones in sub-Saharan Africa uh, is becoming very widespread mm-hmm. because they are cheap to buy and they're relatively cheap to make connections uh, to networks. And so uh, more uh, the use of ICTs is spreading more rapidly in developing nations in Africa uh, and um, uh, uh, India. Uh, China already has uh, more people uh, using the internet regularly than we do in this country, than the total population of this country. Uh, and it spreads very quickly because of the uh, reduced 
cost and utility of the mobile devices. So I see mobility um, as being a huge influence in developing nations. Uh, and uh, in some respects, it's hard to predict of what the consequences will be. Uh, I think we can see it from their growing economies, but what the consequences will be for political organization, uh, for government agencies, for the delivery of government services, uh, those are all areas that I, I see uh, will be important in the future. Uh, and, uh, and all of that, I think, will facilitate globalization. Uh, and uh, and uh, potentially... Uh, can result in greater forms of cooperation uh, among uh, nations, which uh, that would be an enormous positive benefit uh, if that could occur. Uh, if, it, if it's managed properly, there's that potential, and I think that's very, very exciting if that, if that can be brought, up, brought to bear. Absolutely. Now, you just answered the question about what you think the future of ICTs are. What's next for you? <laughs> That's a good question. Uh, I found myself getting involved in uh, kind of the problems of uh, uh, of education, particularly at the elementary level, uh, just through a network which is not <laughs> which is not uh, uh, technology based. Uh, some people uh, asked me to come in and help them look at some information about the potential use of uh, a computer program to get to elementary school kids, inner city elementary school kids, and get them to read on grade level by the time they enter middle school. Uh, and nearby uh, town uh, here where, where I am in Trenton, New Jersey, it's estimated that 75% of kids who enter fourth grade uh, are not reading on grade level. And that is that's a disaster because if you can't read by the time you get to middle school, you're very unlikely to graduate from high school. And then and, and, uh, your lifestyle is very much influenced uh, by that. One of the things that I think is underappreciated with respect to the information technology is the fact that you can give feedback on something uh, instantly. So if you have a computer program that's teaching children reading skills uh, and uh, you uh, teach them about uh, silent E, for example, and then you have a little a game that they play which will demonstrate whether or not they understand uh, the way silent E works at the end of the word. Um, and if they get it, then you move on to a more complex uh, topic in reading skills. And if they don't, then you have remediation uh, immediately, uh, instantly. And it's, it's the functional equivalent of having every student having an individual teacher, tutor, mm -hmm. each student having a tutor. And uh, we've been able to demonstrate uh, in a project that we're running here that if you do this with intensity, that is not, not just let kids sit in front of a computer program a couple minutes a day, but uh, an hour a day, uh, every day, uh, you can bring about enormous gains in reading skills. Uh, here's, here's an opportunity to use that immediate feedback that you can get from them from the computer system 
uh, potentially to great advantage. So I've gotten intrigued with that, and I found myself involved in it. It's not a piece of scholarly work. It, it might result in a couple of research reports, but it also might result in a lot of kids having a lot more opportunities later in their life. So I've uh, I've gotten uh, interested in in that. Uh, at least in the near future, uh, I uh, uh, am intrigued by continuing to read all of the media and the scholarly journals that I do and building up my list of, uh, of uh, things. Maybe someday there'll be a second edition with <laughs> updated, updated examples. Um, but uh, that's, uh, I'm not certain about that. <laughs> but, but putting it together and getting it ready to go up online, which I'll be doing shortly,